Dear Heavenly Father, we bow our heads in submission to You and in reverence to You, Father, and in an acknowledgement that we are here for Your sake, by Your power, according to Your will. All things according to Your will, Father. We are, we are not here, Father, because we decided to be in this Bible study. And we are not here, Father, because we chose this to be the best thing to do on this evening. Though, Father, those may be the thoughts we entered with, I pray that as we now begin in this study tonight, we would remember we are here by Your power. We are saved by Your power. We are capable of knowing the Word by Your power and by Your will. And all that we have done here today, Father, is be led by You and called by You and now we stand ready, Father, to fulfill that purpose in learning from Your Word. I praise You, Father. I thank You for that gift. And that You would see fit out of so many lives on this earth even now to have called us among them to be here tonight. Thank You, Father. And now, Father, I also pray that the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit and the Word through whom He works, I would pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would uh, begin to build us up even now. Begin to prepare our hearts, Father. Begin to uh, perhaps break down those barriers that we have walked in here with. Uh, begin to open our hearts and minds to the possibility that what we may hear in Your Word tonight may be different in some respect to what we may have heard before or studied on our own. And not that in my power, Father, that I would presume to have all the answers or that I would presume to think that because I teach it somehow would be better or more correct than what may have been taught by others, but merely, Father, to know and to trust that Your Holy Spirit is the teacher. We are merely the vessels and, and that You may choose, Father, at any moment to reveal more to us than we have seen before. I pray, Father, we would always have an open heart, ready to accept that teaching and never so proud, never so stubborn that what we've heard before will be the only thing we might ever accept as truth, knowing that that by Your power we, we come to know that truth and that power, Father, being in the room now, is fully capable of, of illuminating the truth, Father, correcting us where we're wrong and guiding us and in, in walking it out in our lives. We trust in that power, not in our own. May the night be to Your glory, Father, and all that we do, may it be something, Father, that would ultimately go to building Your kingdom according to Your will. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. Alright, Luke chapter 18. Uh, if you have your Bibles, as I hope you do, open them up. We'll start where we left off, as always is the case. Luke 8, 18, and I believe we are more or less picking up in about verse 28. Uh, we will do a quick moment here of introduction, as we usually do, to get you back into the text where we left off. We're going to go back in today in chapter 18, rejoining a conversation that we've looked at now for a couple weeks. A conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples and I characterize it as following along a certain topic, a general theme, which we've tried to tie each piece of this chapter to. And that general theme is the, saving, the nature of saving faith, what we can learn about saving faith. The last piece of that conversation out of last week was a moment concerning a young rich ruler and Jesus. And we saw this young rich ruler walk away sad because he couldn't bring himself to meet the test for eternal life that Jesus had presented to him in that moment. The man, if you remember, he presumed that he could be worthy of eternal life simply because of his righteous living. And that presumption reflected in the fact that he came to Jesus with this pointed question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? His focus from the very beginning, as you remember, was on action, on what he himself could accomplish in his own work to merit eternal life. But Jesus, as we saw his response, he pointedly illustrated that, that this man's life wasn't nearly as perfect as he assumed it was. And therefore, he wasn't as nearly as close to the standard, as close to achieving his goal as he presumed that he was, as he came to Jesus with that question. And here's what Jesus said specifically. He said, number one, if your heart's desire is truly to seek the kingdom, then sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And obviously, we know from the text last week, Jesus wasn't giving this man a recipe for how he could earn his own salvation. In other words, he wasn't saying to those who would sell everything they own that that automatically would give them or grant them entrance into heaven. That's not the point of what he was saying. We saw that last week. Rather, we saw that he was teaching a matter of repentance, an issue of repentance to this man as a prerequisite to eternal life, to the kingdom. 
The point being that before you can receive the Messiah, our belief in the Messiah must be an exclusive allegiance. Exclusive. You can't hold Jesus to be important and necessary while at the same time holding that there are other things, to include things like material wealth, that are important to you. You can't put anything above Christ in that respect. Christ and his call on our life must reign reign supreme above all else, or we are just playing games with religion. That's what it comes down to. This man is an example of this principle. He was hoping, when he came to Christ, that he could gain assurance from Jesus that he had discovered the magic formula for entering into heaven and that he was going to receive his reward. And that magic formula in his mind was keeping the law. And his self-delusion was that he had kept it perfectly or at least close enough that he was going to merit eternal life. And his question of Christ really came down to a matter of confirm for me, please, that I'm doing the right thing. Give me some affirmation that all these good things I'm doing will be good enough. But Jesus throws the man a curveball, as I like to say, and he says, if you honestly desire the kingdom, if that's truly your desire, then Jesus says, do away with the one thing that stands in your way in your heart. Put aside the one thing that you have made your God in your heart, and that was your wealth, but the man couldn't do it. And so this unregenerated man could not change his own heart. A heart that was depraved and ultimately betrayed him because it couldn't give up what it valued more than the kingdom, which was earthly riches. So his true God was the idol of materialism, of his wealth. Then we saw, as we ended last week, the disciples exclaim in response to that scene, they exclaimed to Jesus, who can be saved? If this upstanding, righteous, appearing, you know, self-apparently righteous man in our society isn't good enough, then who is? And Jesus, in his response, said, you've got the point. No one is. It's impossible for men to achieve what that man came to achieve. But with God, all things are possible, which leads us to tonight's starting point. Luke 18, verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. I've always said I love Peter. I like to think that, to be honest, if, if I could identify myself with any one of the apostles, I'm, I'm probably most like Peter, but only in the negative senses. And in this case, I, I see myself in, in Peter's footsteps right here. You know, as he sees this example play out and as he hears Christ's response to this rich man, you know, he opens with this immediate exclamation of, hey, look what we've done. We left our homes, right? We're okay. We met the test, don't we, Christ? That's implied by his question, right? I like the way he even begins it. That first word, you often skip over it, behold. In fact, if you have an NIV, you don't even have that word in your version. They just blank it out. But there is a word in the Greek there that means behold, And that word can actually be translated as look. It's a word that you may have just attributed to Bibleese, you know, sort of like Old English. I don't really see that word as having any value to me anymore. But in truth, it's similar to the word you and I use today. Look! So it's a word you would use at the beginning of a sentence when you have something emphatic that you want to say to somebody. So if if it makes it a little easier for you to hear Peter in the vernacular of today, you just replace the word behold with look and you kind of get the same feeling. Look! We've left our homes. <laughs> We've followed you. You, know, you, se- you sense a little bit of urgency in his voice when you see it in that way, when you put it in, the, in kind of a, a modern terminology. And it should be pretty easy for you to see why he's brought this up now. As I said earlier, in listening to Jesus' teaching, Peter here is, is, I would think, not completely sure of all that just transpired. I'm not sure he completely understood everything that Jesus was teaching, but he sure did make one connection real clearly in his mind. And the connection was he saw Jesus say to this rich man, if you can't bear to part with all that you own, you cannot inherit eternal life. Peter caught that. And before he goes any further, he wants to make sure he's on the right side of that equation with Christ. And so you can almost see the wheels turning in Peter's mind as he hears what's going on with the rich man. He's like, okay, wait a minute. We left everything, right? We left everything, right? We're okay. We left everything. We don't have anything we're clinging to. Because if being unwilling to part with your possessions 
leaves you somehow in jeopardy, then Peter's thinking, I better clarify this. And so Peter says, we've given up everything. To which, what does he hope? He hopes Jesus is going to respond by saying, yep, Peter, you're good. Don't worry. You're safe. Are you, am I the only one who sees a smile on Jesus' face when Peter says these things? You know, I, I think Jesus was understanding of Peter's concerns here, no doubt, but kind of a bemused um, you know, feeling of, oh, Peter, yes, you're fine. Don't worry about it. You know, that's, you're missing the point, really. And, and yet he's kind-hearted and he doesn't want Peter to worry. And so when he sees Peter kind of rush to exonerate himself, he gives a response that does produce some encouragement. But before we go into his response, and really before we go any further, I want to take a moment here to just note how this topic of saving faith continues to come up over and over as we go through the chapter. It's always right below the surface in this entire chapter. In this case, it's the sacrifices and the rewards that come with true faith that becomes the issue for the moment. Because Jesus answers his question, but he goes much further than what, Jesus, than what Peter asked. Peter really in his statement is asking a question. And what he's asking Christ to do is to confirm that what he and the other disciples had done was sufficient to meet the test that he just presented to this rich man. And Jesus gives him a confirmation, but goes a step further and says, you will see reward, you will see something in compensation for what you have given up as a part of your saving faith, as a part of what you have done to follow me. That goes beyond what Peter had asked in his initial statement. Jesus is expanding the conversation here again. We've seen this already in this chapter. He does this in several moments. And in expanding it, he goes back to the theme of the chapter. He goes back to this theme of the nature of saving faith and the consequences of that saving faith. And here, as I said, we're looking at sacrifices and rewards. And this is what he says. He says, those who make sacrifices in this age for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the fact that they believe in following Christ's footsteps, those people will be vindicated. And here's what he means by that. Look at the list. He mentions, for example, a house. If you were to be called by your faith to give up the security and the comfort of a home, of a, of a permanent place to call your own. And it's interesting that we have on our minds tonight the story of Steve in, in Tanzania. That, to me, is a very good example of this kind of sacrifice. It is not as though he doesn't have a roof over his head, of course, but in no uncertain terms, he does not have the same kind of house experience, if you will, that you and I take for granted today. Where he lives is really a temporary place no matter where he goes. He may have a residence, he may have, a, and this is true for missionaries in general, they may have a, a residence somewhere, they may have a mailing address, they may have a place they spend most of their time in terms of a home in Tanzania or a home here. But in reality, they're always looking to the next place. And I have friends who are missionaries, I know how that goes for them. So while they're in Tanzania, they know their family is here. And when they're here, they're thinking about going back to the mission field. And there's a, there's a sense that they're never really rooted anywhere, which really calls to mind the fact that they are wanderers in a country that is not their own, as we all are, though in their experience that's made all the more tangible by the lifestyle that God has called them to. What about a wife? It's an interesting one on the list, isn't it? This does not mean leaving your wife as in divorce or abandonment. To, do, to come to that conclusion would mean ignoring Scripture elsewhere. So it doesn't mean leaving a wife in that sense. It would either mean, therefore, leaving the opportunity for marriage, forsaking an opportunity for marriage in order to pursue a God's, God's call in your walk of, of faith, or it may include separation in some temporary sense, the separation of having to go into a mission work, work for a while and not be able to take your spouse with you. I think that's also a potential way to interpret it. But in both cases, it's a sacrifice of an opportunity to spend time with a spouse. How about the brothers, parents, children? Well, certainly, just as with the wife, the same rules apply. The, the separation that ministry might bring or the ability to have children or not to have children, as the case may be, because of a call in ministry, etc. All of those are sacrifices that may be called upon somebody because of their walk in ministry. And here's where you have to be careful. There's no indication in this discourse that we're talking here about something limited to prof what we would today call professional ministry. The Scripture's general approach to those in faith is that we would all walk away from the world and devote ourselves to a, to a walk of ministry in some sense. I typically refer to it as ministry with a capital M versus ministry with a small M. 
if you think of it in those terms, I'm saying, you know, there is a role for professional full-time ministry that is different than perhaps what somebody else might do, capital M versus small m. But there's no such thing as, I don't need to do anything in my life because we've hired a pastor to do all the ministry for us, though we often take that approach, right? As long as there's staff, whoever that may be, to do the work of the church, you know, we're just passive participants if we're not careful. There's no call in Scripture. There's no role in Scripture for that kind of Christian. You are either working in your gift to serve the body, to minister to unbelievers, to the glory of God, or you're disobedient to the call of the gospel. There's no in-between. I'm not putting a definition to how you serve. I'm not giving you a, a, a recipe for how much you might be called to do. I'm not telling you in what context whether it's in a job setting, when it's in, whether it's in a school or in your home even, I, there's no prescription from me on that because there isn't in the Bible it's, itself. But I am saying that we are called into ministry. To minister means to serve, ultimately. To serve the body of Christ in our gifting. And to be a witness to the world. That takes many forms, but the one form I know it doesn't take is doing nothing. And that's essentially what he's saying here. For example, to that rich man, Jesus had demanded that the man's wealth could not stand in the way of his obedience. And that was not because Jesus hated rich men, but it was because that ruler, for that one man, for that particular example, his riches took precedence in his heart over the call of the gospel. That was the issue for that man. And that goes back to my original point. The gospel is an all-or-nothing proposition. If we're truly believers in the gospel and have our hope for eternal life in Christ, then we would never trade that for anything to be found in this world. Whether it's our job, whether it's our family members, whether it's our wealth in general, whatever it is you might put up in your life as a predecessor to, a, to a, answering the call of the, of the gospel in whatever form it takes in your life, you would put a barrier there that Christ said is incompatible with saving faith. Now, you have to be careful there as well because there is such a thing as disobedience among the believers. But we're talking here about someone who has not entered into faith. We're talking about someone who says, I would be a, God, a, a, a follower of Christ. I would be a believer. I would come into this Christian faith that you're telling me about. But if you're telling me it, it means I have to do this, that, or the other, then I'm not interested. It's that kind of a conditional acceptance of the gospel that Christ says does not rise to the level of saving faith to which Peter says, we did those sacrificial things. And then Christ is saying, yes, and to those who would do such a thing, don't worry. The, the, the punchline is this. The rich man would have been richer had he given up all his wealth. The rich man would have had more of the very thing that he couldn't stand to give up, if you understand Christ's words, if he had only taken the opportunity that Christ gave him. Now, does more mean more dollars in the bank? No, there's no promise of that necessarily. But riches in eternal terms, to be sure, salvation more than all else. And I think even in the simple sense of earthly value, I think there is an implied promise here too that in some sense God will make up the difference in your life. That though you may not have a million dollars in a bank account, the ten dollars you do have will make you far happier than the million ever could. It will be in that sense that God will make you better off, will compensate you for your sacrifice. Hebrews puts it this way. In chapter 3, verse 14 of Hebrews, the definition of a Christian, in the, according to the writer of Hebrews, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Those who trust in Christ and never look back, never doubt in the sense of, of putting something in place of Christ for their trust, never make Christ compete in their hearts with something else for their source of hope, that person is a Christian. But those who might come into a, a moment where they declare their faith, make a confession of sorts, appear to start down the path, but later their life reflects a lack of trust in Christ. They, they show evidence that they never really saw Christ as their one hope. They, they simply added it to a pantheon of other hopes. And Christ is sort of worn thin and they've gotten tired of it now and they're back to the, something else or they've found something new. The writer of Hebrews is saying that that's a person who never partook of Christ because they are proving by their falling away that they were never in to begin with. It's in that sense that Christ is asking for the allegiance of this rich man. Show me that you've dispensed with all other hope and then I'll know who you believe and what you, what you follow. 
we should expect that at times we may be called to dispossess ourselves of something that stands in the way of our complete trust and obedience to Christ. As a believer, you should expect that. You should expect somewhere in your walk, if not multiple points along the way, that you would be called to dispossess yourself of something in your life that is standing in the way of complete trust and obedience to Christ. To those who answer that call positively, who respond positively, they're, they're showing the evidence of the faith that is in them. To those who let something stand in their way, they're giving rise to a question about whether or not they were truly in the faith. Because that trust is not self-evident. Their hope is not unique to Christ. Remember Paul's teaching to the church in Corinth? 1 Corinthians 7.29 Paul says this, I say to you, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. I don't know if you remember those verses out of 1 Corinthians 7, but they're very interesting when you look at them in the context of what we're talking about tonight. Paul describes in these verses to the church at Corinth a time on this earth now as a time that has been shortened. He describes the time of our age now as a time that's been shortened. What he's speaking about here is the urgency of the time the shortness of the days, the fact that Christ could return for us at any moment, the fact that there should be a constant living as though He's around the corner. Life has been shortened. And the New Testament is abundantly clear that that's how we're to live our life. When you make decisions in your life, make every decision with the assumption that Christ is coming back tomorrow. Would you make different decisions if that was the basis for your decision making? How you invest your money? How you plan for your future? Where you spend your time? Would you, would you honestly stand before God in this class and say, no, Steve, everything I do now, I have done exactly as if Christ were coming back tomorrow? Who could stand that test? I know I can't. But then that begs the question, well, are you prepared to start living that way? Because the, the Gospel and the New Testament teachings all head in that same direction, that same vein of thinking. The times are short, Paul says. And he says, because the times are short, here's how you are to live. He says, though you may be married... He says, live as though you're not married. Oh, that's a dangerous thing to say, isn't it? (laughs) But in the context of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, which is where you find this statement, it becomes clear that Paul is talking about the demands and the distractions that come with marriage. Though we have commands, as I've said earlier, to love our spouse, to perform our duties in marriage, you cannot use those obligations as an excuse for not obeying Christ's call to be a disciple. And trust me, many do. Now, I don't have to preach to anyone in here that has a, a spouse about the fine line that is to be found between answering a call without distractions from your marriage and, on the other hand, using your ministry as an excuse to abuse your marriage. I've been guilty of that. I, I assume most men or even women who have an ongoing role in ministry will inevitably, sooner or later, fall into that trap of, using, uh, of thinking their ministry so important and there are contributions to that ministry so invaluable that their family gets short shrift. And as I said, I'm guilty of that. But on the other hand, to feel the call of the ministry and to say, I can't do that because if I were to go into that part of the world, I might die and I can't leave my children orphans or my wife a widow is a dangerous flip side to that problem. He says, the times are short, so though you may be married, live as though you're not. Who do we send to war? Single man, right? You know the stories out of the movies. I have a dangerous mission. It's a one-way mission. It's volunteers only. All the married men are dismissed. I want the single men standing alone. You know the scene in the movies, right? The John Wayne type movies. Why are they doing that? Well, the presumption is that the most honorable thing to do for a married man is not to send him on a mission where he's likely to become, where his wife is likely to become a widow. What Paul is saying is, no, you don't understand. The times are short. It's an urgent situation. You need to pretend you're the single man so that you'll volunteer for that dangerous mission if the call of the gospel brings you to that. You can't let your marriage become the basis for disobedience to a call. The God who is calling you to that ministry is the same God who puts you with that wife. So the very same God that said you're in marriage is the God saying, now I'm going to take you and do something with you, which if it results in your death, that was part of my plan. 
You cannot let those kinds of earthly attachments in and of themselves drive you to be disobedient to God's call. Look at his other examples. Those who weep must, must live as those who do not weep, which means we cannot use our sorrows in life as an excuse or barrier to discipleship and obedience. I pray to you, God, not to let my mother die. You let her die anyway, so I'm never coming to church again. I've met people who have done that exact thing, said very much those exact words. You let my child die when I, told, when I prayed that you wouldn't, and because you didn't, I'm never going to let any of my other children go to church. Though you have sorrows, you must live as though you don't, in this sense of a barrier. And similarly, we can't let our triumphs in life distract us away from our calling and response to the gospel, right? I got a promotion. I'm much more important now at work, right? So I just don't have any more time for going to church, honey. I've got to, I've got to work on Sunday morning now. A lot's on my shoulders now. I hit the lottery. We don't need to go to church anymore, <laughs> right? We don't need to pray anymore. We got what we need. Why don't we do this? Let me hit the lottery and then we'll see. We'll see if... Let me experience that. I'll see what really happens. And he goes on. He says, don't let our possessions become... You know, those who possess live as though you don't possess. That's the issue of the material possessions of this world pulling us aside. And Paul sums it up this way. He says, even though we have to live in and use this world to accomplish the mission that he's given us, even though we have... That's the tool. The world is the tool we work with to do the work of the ministry. It cannot matter to us except as we can use it to accomplish the end purpose God has given us. You know, it's like a carpenter who buys a new hammer and is so enamored by his hammer that he doesn't dare use it to strike a nail for fear of scuffing it up. If you're too worried about the world and the things in it that God has given you to use for the purpose of the ministry that you're afraid to put them to use in the sense that you're afraid to get them dirty... To, to risk breaking a few things in your life, breaking in the sense of relationships, breaking in the sense of your attachment to the things of this world. In any sense of that word, if you can't see yourself putting this world to work in the way it's intended, but rather it becomes who you are and what you value, then you're of no use to God. Paul says the times are short. That's what we have to be willing to do. And by the way, he says, this world's not going to last anyway. It's all going away. So Jesus confirms for Peter the fact that they, and likewise we, are going to be called upon to make sacrifices like that rich man. And when we make the sacrifice, our reward will be great. He says it comes in two forms. Let's look at the last one first. He says these sacrifices ultimately are rewarded with eternal life. Now remember, this is not to say that we have earned that reward. It's not the same thing as saying you have earned eternal life. Go back to the example with the rich man. It is simply, if you are willing to forsake whatever you're called to forsake in light of the call of the gospel, then you've proven the fact that you are Christian and therefore you know you have eternal life. So it's in the giving evidence of your faith that he says you will see the reward of eternal life, not in the earning of it. But then he says the second issue, right? The more interesting one. He says that these sacrifices will also result in compensation even now, in this age, he says. And in fact, many times more, he says. So what would that compensation look like? It'd be very, very easy, and I've, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has thought of this possibility. It'd be very easy to consider at this moment that he's promising you earthly riches. And there's more than a few dishonest teachers who would love to seize upon a statement like this out of Scripture and try to tell you that as you sacrifice for the church, which is usually a code for tithing and giving money, you should expect many times more from God, which is more money. Never mind the fact that that's not implied in the statement at all. There's no discussion here about you giving money. There's certainly no discussion about you getting money. What were the kinds of examples he used? Homes, wives, children, brothers. That was the examples he used. And I do think there are some distinct parallels here in the life of a believer to the life, uh, to, the, to this list, rather, that Jesus offers. Let's look at some of those quick parallels as we move back into the text here in a moment, but consider our fellowship with other believers will bring us into the family of God, we're told. Or it is the consequence of being brought into the family of God, the ability to fellowship with other believers. And in this family, you're going to have deep, abiding love that the world longs for but can't achieve in its own power. And you're going to find it because of the love of other believers around you. You're going to have an emotional, maybe even material support from that group. Those who need material support from the church would typically expect to receive it. 
those who need emotional support, counseling support, uh, just the warm encouragement of a friend, you go to the church if you understand the relationship you have in, with one another through the Holy Spirit. You find instructional support, younger women being taught by older women, younger men being mentored by the elders of the church. You're going to see iron sharpening iron between men of like mind coming together and, and studying the scripture. Most importantly, I think you're going to find the, the spiritual support that comes from prayer and encouragement of one another in the body. Now, all of those things, when you are first introduced to them, don't seem quite as equal to what you're giving up if you had to walk away, for example, from a family member because of a division over the gospel, which, of course, is another way that Christ is suggesting you may have to give up a mother or a brother or family member, that the gospel itself may be a dividing line in the family, that as you come to faith of a family that otherwise has no faith, you may find yourself separated from them as a result because of their unwillingness to associate with you now that you have this new God thing. But in each case, I would tell you that with experience in the walk of faith and within the body, you're going to find, I know I have, I would think anyone in the, walk, in the faith would agree with this, the depth and the meaning of those relationships you get through the body of Christ will be far more powerful. They will far exceed what people in the unbelieving world have between themselves. But those kinds of compensating benefits are only fully realized for those who would give priority to gathering together in the fellowship, by the way. Like Hebrews teaches, do not forsake the gathering together as some are prone to do. If you treat your church relationships as merely a social club, with people that you might want to visit with once or twice a week, then you should expect to miss out on much of what Jesus is promising here. It's just that simple. If you have a family relationship and you see or talk to them once a week or once a month, and even then only for a few minutes in a hallway as you shake their hand and walk on, what kind of personal relationship would you expect to have in that family? How deep, how abiding, how useful, how supportive? It's no different in the family of God. So for those who treat this as a social club, they show up a little bit, get a little bit, and leave with giving little, then it should offer almost no compensation for what they've lost in their family relationships elsewhere. That's to be expected. But to those who look at this as their true family, the eternal one, and use their time wisely in, con in that context, they should expect to receive far greater compensation in terms of those lost relationships from those they meet in the body of Christ than they ever could have gained in their own family, even through natural relationships. I believe that's the implied promise of what Christ is offering here. And if you want further proof of that, consider this as we move on. You may have the absolute strongest relationship humanly possible with an earthly family, be it your parents, your spouse, your children, your friends. And you could nurture that relationship to the day you die, to the point where you are, no, you are closer to that person than any human, two human beings have ever been in all of human history. And if one of those two people is an unbeliever, that relationship can barely last a few decades. But if two people are believers in the Lord and in the body of Christ, they are established in a relationship that is eternal. And so if you don't like them now, I'd start working on it. Because you've got a long time. And that's the true relationship. So that for those who say, well, I had to leave my mother in order to become a Christian, that seems like too great a sacrifice. And in some sense, it's certainly a sacrifice. But what they gained was the brotherhood of believers unto eternity. We should cast our lot with the ones whose relationship can be eternal. It only makes sense. And Peter's been reassured here, and Jesus has given him something to look forward to for the sacrifices they've made. Then he turns to his third warning about his coming death as we move back into 18. Chapter 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. As I mentioned just a moment ago, this is not the first time Jesus had spoken of his coming death. In fact, in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus predicts his death in this same way three different times in all three of those Gospels. So there's actually a, a trio of predictions in the synoptic Gospels. In Luke, we see Jesus mentioning the necessity of his death, death the first time in, at the beginning of chapter 9, 
when he's first departing for Jerusalem. We studied it back at that point. Later in that same chapter, he warns them a second time. So in Luke chapter 9, you see two of the three. And then here in 18, we see the most detailed prediction of the three in Luke concerning the events of his death. What's so interesting in all three cases, and I guess particularly here, is that the disciples can't understand the reference. It's not just in this case, but in all three, the meaning of this, of this prediction is lost on them. And what's so interesting to me is, when you look at the actual words being spoken by Christ, they're so specific and they're so plain. You know, it's not as though this is a parable. You could almost forgive them for that, right? And it's not as though he, he talks it, you know, some kind of obtuse way, makes some kind of fleeting reference, uses some kind of symbolic language. No, he just states it plainly. I mean, look at the text we just read. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all the things that you've seen written in the prophets about what the Messiah will have to do will be accomplished there, to include he's going to be handed over to Gentiles, mocked, mistreated, spit upon. After they scourge him, they're going to kill him. On the third day, he's going to rise again. I don't know how much more simply you could say it. And yet, we're told that they don't get it. And what the text actually says is more than that, of course. The text says it was hidden from them. In fact, in the second warning, if you were to go back into chapter 9, you would also see Luke comment in the context of the second warning that that warning was also concealed. Not just misunderstood, not just that they didn't you know, pick up on it, it was concealed. Here it's told as being hidden. So what's going on here? Why give a warning but then conceal the meaning of that warning? Doesn't that seem to run counter to the reason you give a warning? Because clearly what's implied by the text when we hear that it's hidden is that God himself would not allow them to understand his own words. That's the only re- reasonable interpretation of the words when we hear that it was hidden from them or that it was concealed from them. There's no other way that could have been true except that God himself was preventing them from understanding it. Which, again, goes back to the question, why does God, through Christ, give a warning that God himself simultaneously prevents them from understanding? It makes you ask the question, well, what's the point in the whole thing then? Some would say, well, it's just so that you and I would understand it today. It's not to negate that truth, obviously, but it doesn't answer the question, why give it to the disciples that way? Well, we covered this in some detail back in chapter 9, so I I don't want to spend a lot of tonight repeating all of that. It's available if you want to listen to it later. But I do want to remind you of some of the basic issues here. Number one, the, the point in giving the disciples this information is not so that they would understand it in the moment. It is not so that they may understand the future either. In other words, this is not a prediction of the future. It's not like Christ telling them, here's what's going to happen in the future, and I'm just trying to give you a preview of it now. If Christ simply wanted to explain the future to them so that they knew what was coming, then he wouldn't have concealed it. So we cannot, we have to rule some things out. One thing we can rule out is he's not just giving them prophecy here so that they might know the future in advance. That is one of the primary reasons you give prophecy, by the way. You tell something to somebody before it happens so that when it happens, they understand the sovereignty, the power that must have been involved in knowing the future. That's not what he's doing here. Because he's not letting them have the knowledge in advance. He's just speaking the words. So what other reason would God give men information like this without the understanding? Well, it's the same reason that God gave men his word in the scriptures, but yet does not give men the ability to understand all of it immediately. You ever thought about that? You have the word of God here in printed form. It's in English. Most of it's written at about a ninth grade reading level. You can open it up, and if you have any basic education at all, you can read through it and understand the words, but do you understand the meaning? Is there anyone here that wants to say they understand the meaning of every verse in Scripture? All 31,000 plus, as we learned tonight? Well, no, so why? Doesn't that beg the question, what is it about the word that I can't understand it? If it's in English, and I know how to read English, and I can read the words on the page, why isn't that sufficient? And we know that by Scripture itself that the understanding of the word must come from the Holy Spirit. So then that begs another question. Why doesn't he just let me know it then? And here you find the same question as the one we're studying tonight in Luke. Why give me information? Why hand it to me, but hide the meaning of it until some future appointed moment? It's the same principle in both cases. Many places in Scripture were given to men only so that they could be understood many generations after the text itself was actually written. For example, many of the prophecies of Jesus were not understandable until after his crucifixion. 
I can take you back into the Psalms. I can take you back into Isaiah and show you many, many uh, prophecies of Christ, of his life, of where he would be born, how he would die, and how he would live out his life. And only after Christ had come and fulfilled all those prophecies was it clear to you and I that those were, in fact, prophecies of Christ. In the years leading up to his birth and crucifixion, you could have read those verses and not appreciated that they were talking about the Messiah. And yet it's so obvious after the fact that that's what they were talking about. Many of the prophecies of the nation of Israel itself could only be understood after Jesus was rejected and the temple was destroyed. Before then, it was hard to understand how some of those prophecies were going to be carried out. Many of the prophecies about end times could only be completely understood once Israel was again made a nation in 1948. Most, by the way, this is a little interesting nugget in itself. Most of the bad teaching surrounding the end times, most error in eschatology arose in the 1800s. Not today, but in the 1800s. Principally because there was a revival in the 1800s toward progressive interpretation of Scripture, a more liberal uh, interpretation of Scripture. And when it came to eschatology, the thinkers of the day said, there is no nation of Israel present on the earth, nor will there ever be again. Self-evidently, Jews have been scattered. There's no hope for them. Their land has been taken over by other countries. They'll never give that land back to Israel. No force in the, in the world could ever uh, uh, you know, remove those people and give that land to Jews who are scattered all over the world. We can't imagine that happening. And unless there's a physical Israel somewhere on the earth, and not just somewhere, but in the Holy Land, the prophecies of the, Old, uh, of the New Testament and the Old Testament can't possibly come true in the way they're written. Because they all depend on a nation of Israel again in the land. So it must have some other meaning. And they let their minds wander and their imaginations go away, go away with them. And they arrived at new conclusions about the meanings of these prophecies because they all hinged on a physical Israel and they couldn't see a possibility of there ever again being a physical Israel. And in some sense they were right because it took the turmoil of World War II to bring about the nation of Israel. Something that no one could have imagined in the 1800s. Having done that in 1948, now everyone took a second look at prophecy and goes, well, maybe this isn't so far-fetched after all. In that way, God can reveal truth and yet hide its meaning through a variety of circumstances, either through the circumstances of the world or just the very fact that the text itself doesn't make sense to us. So God is not above giving men his word without the immediate understanding because he desires to reveal it in a future day. Now, what's the point in doing that? Looking at the text in Luke, why tell these men about something that they're self... In just a matter of weeks, they're going to see this happen. In this case, in Luke, we're not talking about generations of time. We're talking about weeks. So in the very near future, these men are going to see these events, the ones he's just spoken about. So why wait a few weeks to give them the information they're going to get anyway? Why not just let them have the understanding right now? And here's the bottom line. When they make the connection, when this is finally revealed to them, when they can actually look at the content and come back and say, he told us about this, when that truth is revealed, it will be made even more powerful in their minds because they will be able to recognize that it was given beforehand. That it was predicted. God's ability to reveal the future and yet to do so in such a way that we don't understand it until He's ready to reveal it magnifies His sovereignty and His trustworthiness to us. And in this case, that was especially important because the question that was foremost in their minds after the crucifixion was how can our Messiah die? How can the world put to death the King of the world? How can God be put to death by his own creation? And when God himself, when Christ himself predicts the manner of his own death in advance, and then as it occurs and the revelation is made known to them, they connect the dots, now they have the explanation they need. They can say to themselves, this wasn't just chance. This is itself a part of God's plan. For he knew it would happen and told us it was to fulfill prophecy, that it was to fulfill all that was written about the Messiah. So it had to be this way. It was God's intention. And I don't have to worry that it somehow means that our God has failed. But rather, I can mean it, it means exactly what it is, that God has succeeded. Look at what you hear at the very end of Luke. Let me jump you to Luke 24 for a moment. Because I want you to see the, the other dot. When I say connect the dots, I want, to see, I want to show you how this finally plays out. Verse, 20, uh, verse 44 of chapter 24, at the very end of Luke. This is after his resurrection, while he's still walking the earth. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in, uh, in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now he connects the dots. Now he gives them the understanding. He reminds them it was to fulfill prophecy. Can, can you even begin to imagine the wow of that moment? The hair standing on the back of their neck. The chills on their, you know, to see for a moment the whole picture just, bam, now I got it. Now I understand it. And it was just as you told us. And yet I heard the words and I didn't understand them. But I remember I heard them. And in remembering them, I realized you planned this. And now I see you as the sovereign that you are. Similarly, when we go to Scripture and something we've read a hundred times comes to us in a new light and it comes when we need it for a reason that is specific to that moment and it's just what we wanted and yet it was been there all along, you're listening to the Holy Spirit in your heart teaching you as God has prepared it for you centuries earlier and revealed it to you in the moment you needed it most. I don't know about you, but he's done that to me so many times I've lost count. Luke 18.35 as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was, Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord... I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Now Luke records this incident to provide a capstone to this chapter on faith. And what I want to do more than anything is show you how this fits so perfectly into the theme of faith that has driven Luke through the narrative of chapter 18. Because the story itself is very simple. Very straightforward. But there are a couple of issues worth mentioning as you look at the details of the story. Luke tells us of this blind man that Jesus met on his way into Jericho, approaching Jericho. But if you know your Gospels, then you might know that in Mark and in Matthew's accounts of this same incident, the blind man is met on the way out of Jericho in their accounts. And more than that, even in Matthew's account, there are two men, not just one. Well, of course, for those who would find reason to want to tear down the Scriptures, this becomes a, an opportunity in their minds to show inconsistency and to show error and to say that the, the Scriptures can't be trusted. Let's look at each of those issues and see if that's in fact the case. First, the issue of the one man versus the two. This is not unusual, for that matter, in the Gospel record. It's not uncommon for one Gospel writer to focus in on one character in a particular setting while ignoring others that were there at the same time. And yet other gospel writers will choose to incorporate the whole scene in their description. It's not an inconsistency. It's simply a matter of the focus the writer may have had. In this case, Luke's focus, his purpose, his, his reason for recording this, doesn't turn on whether there's one person or two people or ten people. The number of people has no bearing on the, on the meaning and the purpose of him relating this account. So to simplify the story, he reduces it to one man. By the way, Mark does the same thing. And Mark names the man. Bartimaeus. Matthew, on the, other, on the other hand, is teaching from a slightly different perspective. And for him, he is talking about pairs of men for a reason. I won't go into Matthew's account for the sake of time. But the point is that having one man say there's two and another man say there's one is not a contradiction. It simply reflects the fact that the second person only chose to record one of the two. That in itself is not a contradiction. And it's very common in the Gospels. It happens in several places. The second issue, though, of arriving or leaving Jericho is answered a different way they're mixing up the two Jerichos. Because there were two Jerichos in that day that were side by side on the same road. You have the old Jericho, the one out of Joshua that was destroyed, the walls in ruins, the city but mostly uninhabited. And as, the prophecy, as God promised in Joshua, it would never be rebuilt, never lived in again. But what they had done was they had built another city very near the first and called it Jericho as well. So on the same road you had two Jerichos. Now if the man is sitting between them, then you can say simultaneously that Jesus approached the man while leaving Jericho and he approached the man while entering Jericho. Both statements are truthful. It's really a matter of which Jericho you're thinking about as you write the story. That doesn't prove that that's why it was said the way it was said, but it certainly gives a plausible, rational explanation for why there would be difference and leaves open the question about whether there is a contradiction or not. 
for those of us who know the scriptures to be true, we realize that it is a very easy way to reconcile the two uh, versions of the story in that very minor detail in any case. But to the context of the account itself, as I said, it's very straightforward. As Luke tells it, a man is blind. He's sitting on the side of the road. He hears the crowd passing by. He hears that this crowd is following Jesus. Having heard that Jesus is nearby, he cries out for Christ. He says, have mercy on me. For some reason, the crowd tries to silence the man, especially those, we're told, who are leading the crowd. And I want to point out something as we pass by. I think it's likely that the leaders here, the ones leading the crowd following Jesus, were the Pharisees. We know they're following Jesus everywhere he goes to accuse him. And given their status in society, they would have had the lead role in the crowd. They would have walked at the front of the crowd. This is not to say the disciples, because the disciples would have been in the immediate vicinity of Christ. These are followers. These are the gaggle that are following at a little distance from Christ and just watching everything he does and listening to him. It also goes to motive, right? It also goes to the motive of why they would try to silence this man. If you're the Pharisee and you hear this man crying out for Christ and you silence him, what does that say that they think about his statement? It suggests that he was calling out to Jesus as the Messiah. That his cries for Christ and his cries for Christ to show mercy on him reflected a faith in Christ, a belief that this was the Messiah, therefore you can do what I need you to do. Have mercy on me. In calling him Christ publicly, the Pharisees hated that and they tried to silence him. Don't call him the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. They thought that that is blasphemy and they tried to stop it at every turn. So it would make sense that the people at the front of the crowd were the Pharisees. Despite their objections, or maybe because of them, Jesus takes time to take note of the man. And he goes and asks the man, what do you desire? And the man says, I want my sight. Jesus heals him physically and spiritually, saying, your faith has made you well. Finally, the man follows Jesus, gives God glory, and then causes the people to give praise to God. Now, this is a simple story, and it's so simple, in fact, that I'll challenge you, if you were reading through the Gospel of Luke, you reached this point in chapter 18, something tells me that many of us would read through the story, appreciate it, and move right on. But by appreciate it, I simply mean, look at it as yet another example of Christ healing the needy. Well, to be sure, it is that, but that's the least of it. I want you to consider that this story is a perfect picture of how God does the impossible. How he saves men. First, I want you to consider we have a blind man. A man who cannot see. The man represents every sinner. A man who is spiritually blind to the truth and without hope. Like amazing grace, right? I once was lost, now I found I once was blind, now I see. The classic picture of before and after salvation. He's a blind man. And then his attention is drawn to something new. He hears Jesus. He hears Christ coming by. As Paul teaches us in his letter to the Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He's blind after all, so the whole he can do is hear. But it is through the hearing of the word of Christ, in this case, passing by, that his attention is grabbed. John 5.25 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John says. And hearing that Jesus is near, the sinner cries out for mercy. But even as he does, the unbelieving world works to thwart the sinner's response to the gospel. Because the enemy would certainly not have it that the gospel would be heard and received. But Jesus takes note of the sinner and calls the sinner to himself. Do you notice that? Jesus didn't walk to the sinner. He had them bring the sinner to him. He called the sinner Ultimately, every sinner is saved by being called into a relationship with God by God Himself through the Holy Spirit, which is also consistent with what we've studied through this chapter on the nature of saving faith. Then Jesus poses the question that every sinner must answer. What do you expect of Jesus? Who do you say that I am? What is it you desire from me? Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession is a requirement to establish faith. Because it is the moment in which you give evidence of the changed heart. I have a story in my own walk of a time as an adult about ten years ago as I came to faith. And I didn't have that moment in in a day when you know you're saved. It was more of a a growing awareness that something had changed in my life and a a newness of spirit and and a desire to be in church and in the Word in a way that had never happened before. But I had never been baptized and I had never made a public confession. I never had that 
walk down to the altar moment. And yet I had heard in teaching that I have to do these things. And I knew I had believed. And I thought, well, that's got to be good enough. I mean, I'm sure it's not a matter of mechanics. I, just because I haven't spoken it in, in front of an altar, that doesn't mean I'm not saved, right? And true enough as that is, God is not going to make his word void, right? And in one moment on an afternoon in my home, there was a knock on the door, and I went to the door and answered it, and there was two young men there with a Bible. And they said, hello, I'm so-and-so. And he said, if you were to die today, where would you go? Nice to meet you too. Uh, but I knew the answer to that question. And I immediately answered, of course, that I would be with my Lord and Savior Christ because he has saved me by his work, and I believe in that work on the cross. And the guy got a big smile on his face, and he said, praise the Lord, brother. Have a good day. Walked off. And I remember thinking as I closed the door, almost before the door hit the latch, that was my opportunity to confess the Lord. God gave me the opportunity that he expected me to take if I was to have an obedient heart to the calling of the, minute, of the faith. It wasn't that I was saved because I did what I did. It was because he wanted to give me an opportunity to show the obedience he demanded of all believers. Confess with your mouth. Now, it's not been the last time I've done it, but it was the first. And I believe God gave me that opportunity and gracious desire to allow me to obey. Gently persuade me to obey. So then the sinner asks, in this case, to be healed, to have his sight, which I believe in a picture form means to have spiritual sight, to see with spiritual eyes. To be saved, in other words. To which Jesus responds positively, which is itself a lesson, for whomever asks shall receive. Those who have been quickened by the Holy Spirit to, to hear the call and to know the gospel and to receive it and to accept it, to ask for God's forgiveness, will always receive that. He will never turn away those who come to him in that way. Then the eternal purpose of the sinner's salvation is made clear. Look at how this ends. The sinner gives glory to God for his salvation. Friends, that is the reason you are saved. Not for yourself, but to the glory of God. And then, this sinner's renewed life and his testimony to the world results in the crowds giving glory to God, giving praise to God, which is the second reason you've been saved, as light and salt, as evidence to the world of what God has done in your heart. So in the two purposes God has in saving a sinner, you see them played out here at the end. To the man giving glory to God himself and to the world giving God praise for what he's done in that man's life. That's the reason you're saved. This is the gospel played out in perhaps the simplest vignette of Scripture. And I would say a fitting ending to a chapter whose main purpose is to demonstrate the, saving, the nature of saving faith, the nature and the manner of saving faith. And as a final point tonight for you, does this pattern sound familiar to you personally? Because as a believer, you should see yourself in this story. You should see evidence in your own life of a pattern that in some respects matches this one. Of a feeling to a call, of a response, of a public confession of faith, of a life now devoted to giving God glory for that work of salvation and to the praises of God originating from others as a result of your life lived in faith. Not for your work, not for your goodness, but because of God's work through you. If your life falls short at any point along there, if you don't know that there has been a call, if you've never made a public confession, perhaps you have reason to, to rethink why it is you call yourself a Christian. But if you know those two things to be true, but, but you can't see the evidence of yourself giving God praise or of others giving God glory for the fact that you have been saved, then maybe the walk you lead in faith is suffering a bit. Maybe, maybe your light's not bright enough. Maybe your salt isn't salty enough in the things you do and say. Because ultimately, that is the purpose of our salvation. So until that purpose is fulfilled, all that's happening before it has fallen short of where God would, would, would see it go in your life. And it's by His power we do any of that. But we have the power in our flesh to thwart it, at least in the sense that we can be saved and not look like it. Make sure that that's not where you end up. So tonight, if, that is, if, if, if anything God has said through His Word and, and through the teaching tonight has resonated in your heart to the point where you would would seek to make a public confession though you've never had the opportunity perhaps or because your walk isn't where it should be. I would pray that the Holy Spirit would not just give you that insight but give you the courage to respond, to correct those issues, whether it is in this moment now before those you gather with or at a future moment or in just your daily decisions. I would pray that God would give you the courage to live out the gospel in truth and in an evidence given to others. For that is why we are called. To God's glory, let's go to prayer and to a quick time of fellowship. Father, 
I give you praise and thanks for your word. I give you praise and I give you thanks for the salvation you've brought to men by your work on the cross through Christ. And The Gospel, Father, is so real and true to those of us who know it and foolishness to those who are perishing, we are told. But Father, where it is impossible for men to jump the divide between a depraved and blind heart into the arms of Christ with a newness of spirit and an open sight to see things with spiritual eyes. Father, that is an impossible cavern for us to cross. It is one, Father, that You cross so easily in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray for that work in the hearts of all who hear this message. We pray that even now as the message has been spoken, that it would be working in the hearts of those who have heard it. First, to the call of the Gospel. May those, Father, who have heard this message and feel that desire to respond and to confess that they would have the, the boldness of spirit to do that immediately to whomever and however you give opportunity. And then to all who have confessed, Father, I pray the courage to live it out, that their lives, Father, would be worthy in some small measure of the sacrifice Christ made on their behalf. Thank you, Father, for the time in your word, for the patience of those who have listened to it, and for the opportunity to gather. May it be according to your will that we would be back next week and continuing in our study of this gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.